Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Crazy Money. My name is Paul Ollinger. Thank you for tuning in. Did you tune in? Did you, I know you tune in on an FM radio. What do you do with a podcast? You, thanks for streaming in. Thank you for downloading in. Thank you for listening on whatever device, however you've acquired it. Anyway, thanks for being here. This week's episode, I get to interview celebrated American painter Brendan O'Connell. Brendan, who has been called the Warhol of Walmart for his series capturing scenes within the retail giant stores, he chronicles what it's like to live in, in our world today. And that's how he got to the Walmart thing. He'll tell us a little bit about that. Brendan's work hangs in the homes of A-list celebrities, and he's been reviewed in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Cosmopolitan, Time, NPR, and almost everywhere else that art is discussed. And yeah, Cosmopolitan discusses art in addition to the best eyeshadow and how to break up with your loser boyfriend who's boring you in the sack. They talk about art. So kudos, Cosmo. Thanks for reviewing some of Brendan's stuff. Today, Brendan and I talk about how we got his starts on the streets of Paris, the hustle required to make it as a painter, and why he has a beef against you guessed it, the Dutch. Yeah, the Dutch. Didn't see that one coming. Hey, folks, if you like what we're doing here at Crazy Money, do me a favor. Tell a friend. Share this episode or another episode with a friend. It would mean a lot to us. People start seeing the numbers grow, and they have been growing very nicely, I'm proud to report. People start seeing the numbers grow. They take notice. They share it. And then the whole thing kind of gets bigger and more exciting and more fun for everybody. We get to have better guests. Not better. I mean, how could you get better than what we've already got? Oh, boy. I just put myself into a little pickle there. I mean, we get to, it makes it easier for me to book big guests. That's what I mean. That's part of the, that's, that's, there's a little work involved there. I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie. Uh, anyway, I'm really excited about uh, what we're doing here. Hope you are too. This week's episode is great. Brendan and I went to the same high school, but we did not talk for 30 years, maybe 25 or 30 years. And then we reconnected when he gave a TED Talk here about seven years ago. And since then, we've gotten to be very close friends. I've learned a tremendous amount from Brendan about what it means to be an artist, how to keep pushing through the ups and the downs. And he's also told me about 20 great books that I've, that I've read. And, and he's just a really overall smart dude. So here it is, my conversation with painter extraordinaire brendan o'connell there have been like really high points and really low points and then a lot in between i remember one kind of heiress that bought a lot of paintings in atlanta i'm weeding her yard for oh. my brother wow looking through the bay window at a painting i sold for 10 grand thinking, yes, this is the path of downward nobility. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. This is not a podcast about how to make a million bucks, how to beat the stock market, or how to save money by switching cable providers. It's about how we think about and live with money as a society and as individuals. It's about the choices we make that lead us toward or away from happiness. Welcome to Crazy Money. What brings you to town today, Brendan? I have a show this week in, at Spalding Nick's gallery, and I'm doing, it's called Bringing It All Back Home, and kind of explores American identity. What does the Warhol of Walmart mean? What is that all about? Well, it... it sort of became a convenient hook because once I think it was the Boston Globe or the Houston Chronicle did a piece and kind of dubbed me that way. And it became the hook that a lot of media just kind of latched onto the idea of contemporary pop culture. And I think the alliteration of the W's helped. <laughs> um, but, but the gist is if I had to describe what I was trying to do was I felt like there was an appealing and large sandbox that had Edward Hopper on one end and Andy Warhol on the other. Mm -hmm. And that there, that, that was a lot of room for me to play in this sandbox of how do you do sad or interesting? Like a lot of Edward Hopper images are really sad, but they're painted so beautifully that we kind of accept the sadness in a way. So Edward Hopper is the guy that, did night something? Yeah, Nighthawks. Nighthawks, which is like a like a Waffle House 
diner type like scene. Pre-Waffle House. Pre-Waffle House. The background is Edward Hopper's emerged right when car culture emerged. Mm-hmm. So many of his scenes take place from sketches that he would pull up and do a sketch from the car window. Oh, wow. And so his vantage point, viewpoint, was from a car window. So we had this sense of looking into windows of people's houses, looking into a, like an empty street. or, or and, and so that kind of voyeuristic isolation. Mm-hmm. And so, so that is appealing to people who don't care about painting at all. Go to an Edward Hopper show and love just love painting because they can appreciate the point of view is that the, the point idea? of view and the beauty and and you know the kind of everyday america of that time yeah and and so in some respects walmart was a good paradigm for where america is now mm. or at least where 15, it spends its time where, where it where it was 15 years ago when I started this. You as a painter exist somewhere between Hopper and Warhol. Well, that would be the very grandiose <laughs> idea. Brendan O'Connell calls himself <laughs> um, the new Hopper. So, so, the, so the, the Whopper, that's what you are. That's pretty funny. So the idea is Edward Hopper painted these things beautifully that were sometimes sad or lonely. Yes. And, uh, Andy Warhol was all, I love all of his ideas, but some of his work makes me feel like I have a cold reaction emotionally to it because he's doing things that are inherently cold or neutral because they're commercial, right? Like a brand in itself is a neutral or cold idea, but somehow painting them makes them warmer. And, and, and so that's what I think about, um, exploring some of Andy Warhol ideas in a more, in a warmer nostalgic way that Hopper does essentially. So, so you take that influence and how did you get the idea to paint in Walmart? I had been in Europe for a while. And when I came back, there were Walmarts everywhere and I lived in the country in Connecticut. And I noticed that the only place I actually saw people Mm -hmm. was in Walmart. Like I would go to the bank and I was the only one in line and it was like, I need to get me a dog biscuit and a mortgage. You know, Mm -hmm. it was very empty of humans and the post office, there was nobody in line, but then you'd go to Walmart and there were suddenly tons of people. Right. So that was partly where it was like, where are all the people when you live in the country? So then you just pick up your, your palette and walk into Walmart and start a sketching. What's what, like, what? So, so I took photographs. I paid this, I bought groceries for this out of work actress and mm-hmm. then made paintings from the photos. Right. And so that's kind of how it started. Like I did paintings about everyday shopping and sort of the American blonde shopping. That was the origin of the series. And since this is a podcast about money and, and, and the role it plays in our lives, did you do this with some hope that this would be more commercially viable than whatever you were painting prior to that. You know, what's weird is I don't mean to imply that you're a sellout artist. (laughs) No, 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 no. Did this seem more commercially viable because nobody else was doing it or something? No, I mean, that wasn't really the, the impulse. Why you start something is very different from why something keeps going. I think I started the idea, in some respects, I started by doing caricatures and portraits in the street in front of Notre Dame, and that's about as commercial as you can get. And and so that was directly, I'm drawing to make money today in order to be able to paint. So the Walmart series was more like, oh, I think it'd be cool to explore America, Americana, everyday art mm-hmm. in this art of the everyday idea. So I didn't think... I wasn't thinking too far ahead. So you just went into Walmart and started painting. And then when did you feel like you were onto something? Well, my first show of the Walmarts was like 2006 in New York. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting that, you know, I got a review in Art in America. And every time I did a show on Walmart, there, there was press. So it was kind of, it definitely had that effect. And then I like would sell 
I would sell them. But right. I mean, I wasn't getting rich, but I was making a living. Is this the first time that you were finding sort of a rhythm to revenue, as it were, as an artist? You know, I mean, people underestimate when you start out as a painter, mm -hmm. like half your sales are pity sales, you know, like... <laughs> <laughs> is this why there's several of your pieces hanging in my house <laughs> and so, it's like your friends who have a little bit of scratch come out and say right. you know he's a nice guy let's sure. keep him from the poor house yeah so half are like wow he actually is doing something and the other half are like it's not bad he's a right. nice guy i'll do it right that's how people that's why people come out to my comedy shows it's still they're like nice oh, you know we have to have a date night anyway <laughs> we might as well go Hear this poor guy who starved for attention tell jokes. You mentioned you were you were a um, street artist in, in Paris. Correct. So how did you find your way there? Did you know you wanted to be an artist when you were in high school? I did not. I mean, I was just very delusional in high school. I mean, we went to the same high school. So it's. I, I remember when I went to the college counselor. Mm -hmm. and they, Singular. Yes. And she kind of said, what's your top three schools in and one of them I had like Berkeley College of Music. Mm -hmm. And she said, what, what instrument do you play? And I was like, I have a guitar. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, you realize people have been training for years to, and, and I just assumed that it would be okay. I like, like music. <laughs> it's like, you heard that Johnny Cash? He's something else. I want to be Bob Dylan. I was just delusional. So there was a part of me that knew I wanted to do something in the arts and was just figuring that I was just going to figure that out. Mm -hmm. But I never drew it. I I'd never drew until I was 22. Really? So the idea of that I could somehow be a musician or an artist seemed like as feasible as anything. Right. But I moved, to, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I moved to Paris in 1990 to write a novel about a group of painters. And I knew, met a group of painters when I was there in Paris. You were how old when you moved to Paris? 22. To write a novel. To write a novel. How'd, that, how'd you sell that one to your folks? Well, you know, I was done with school. I fulfilled my obligations and my dad... Your obligation to them. My, your obligation was to accept their tuition money to right, get an right. education. So, so, so it was like a... I didn't realize what a gift it was to finish college and not have a penny of debt. Yeah. So I could go jump off in Europe for right. seven years. Finishing college with no debt is not a thing anymore. <laughs> right. The kids aren't doing that. So how did you sell that to your folks? Did you tell them you were going to go to Paris to write a novel? Well, I was supposed to go to Berkeley to go study comp the other Berkeley, uh -huh. uh, not the College of Music, the one, right. the one in California to study comparative literature. Mm -hmm. And and then I was going to take a year off, write mm -hmm. a novel right. and then go to graduate school. That right. was kind of the plan. William Butler Yeats, the great Irish poet, mm -hmm. used to say some people needed 10 years in a library and other people needed 10 years in the world. Uh -huh. And I thought about that and I was like, I think I want 10 years in the world right now rather than 10 years in a library. Who funded the trip to Paris? How'd that go down? I just, I saved up a couple thousand bucks and I had an Irish passport and mm -hmm. I went to Paris and I got a job teaching English and it was kind of the heyday of teaching English and Spanish and in, in Paris. Okay, so you spoke English and Spanish. You hadn't yet begun to draw at this point? And no. I moved there in beginning of September and November 11th, 1991, I picked up a pencil and did my first drawing. And how long after that are you doing caricatures? So, out, And are you doing the kind of characters like you do at Six Flags where my head is giant and then they ask me what hobby it is and then... They put a surfboard in my arm. Not that I surf, but yeah, I wasn't, I, it was more of the old school French where you're doing an, an expressionistic drawing of the head. Right. And so the head would be normal size and the mm -hmm. body would be shrunken, but I didn't do any of the hobby stuff. Or, <laughs> I wasn't good Wait, at that. The head is normal size, but the body is shrunken. So what you're saying is the head is giant. It's not normal size. It's giant proportion to the body. Okay. But it's, it's normal size proportion to the head. It's like a one-to-one -one head in terms of a drawing. Okay. But the body's like 15 to one. Okay. Or one to 15. One to 15. Thank right. you. So, uh, okay. So you're drawing outside and you just start drawing. How do you make your living on a day-to-day -day basis drawing in Paris? What's a, what's a character? What, what is a drawing of my giant head go for in 1990 on the streets of Paris? 
you know, I kind of divided my time between Paris and the South of France. Mm -hmm. And in the beginning I was making 10 bucks a day, mm -hmm. you know, um, you kind of did a lot of free drawings and then somebody pitied you. Right. But it was like a real lesson in capitalism. Like mm -hmm. I'd go over to the Russian caricaturist and they kind of had a little team of three and they worked together in a little cabal. And, mm -hmm. and I was like, so how do you charge? Like, what's the plan? And he was like, Price depends on customer. And he's like, <laughs> American, shit customer, 50 francs. Right. He was like, British, good customer, 100 francs. And then he was like, Japanese, 500 francs. But Japanese, <laughs> like rabbit, difficult to catch. <laughs> I'm afraid the Russians are engaging in gross stereotypes there. Okay, so then you're living on ten bucks a day. Are you you're just eating baguettes and well, yeah, where are you I, living? I, I'm, are you living I, I'm, I'm, ca I'm crashed on somebody's floor, and then in the south of France, I was living in a tent. So I was definitely living the vagabond. I was I was like spiritual vagabond. How long did you stay in Paris living like that? Um, like in the spring, because the south of France didn't get tourists in the spring. So I was in Paris in the spring doing that, and in the summer I was in a town called Carcassonne. Mm -hmm. And then in the winter, I was a caretaker of a castle. Of a castle? Yeah. Uh, so sort of a weathered castle. A weathered castle. Sort of like a... Like a B-grade castle? A high-end barn, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Very old <laughs> barn made of stone. So you spend how, a couple years? How long were you? I did, I did three years in France like that. Three the, the summers doing caricatures and portraits, and then the winters painting you're improving as an artist through this day-to-day -day like, practice. Yeah, I did, I did my 10,000 hours Okay, in that three-year period. Okay, so then you come back to the States after that? I came, like, I did a show. For some reason, I know you were a painter, but I can't not picture you dressed up like a mime in this period for some reason. You know, there was an occasional beret, <laughs> and I would wear cut-off shirts and, and, and a button-down shirt that sometimes had painted on the back vive la culture. Uh, so, so it was, it was arranged, but it was during the grunge phase of American culture. So they kind of associated me with Seattle. Got it. Got it. Okay. So there was a show. I had a friend in Paris who was another expat and he was an ex wall street broker and his filter for the world was truly an economic one. Right. Like he analyzed everything through economics. Okay. And he called everyone Johnny, so he didn't have to be bothered about remembering their names. That's an excellent strategy. I should adopt it. And so he was like, Johnny, um, I see you as a 50-year-old man doing caricatures. Right. And this can't happen. <laughs> you need to go do a show in your hometown where you know the most people. Right. And just decide. Just make a show. And he did the whole you know, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, ABC, mm -hmm. always be closing. Yes. Think of all those people who are cold, cold prospects and get them to become owners of special pieces. Right. So this is a, I'm pyra a pyramid marketing scheme, but instead of selling knives, you're selling your own artistic work. It wasn't quite a pyramid, but it was, it was, uh, it was pretty flatlined. But you're calling, <laughs> you're calling your parents, friends and asking them to buy something of your work or your friends, parents or whatever. Right. And it was definitely active. Like, Hey, I didn't know anyone who actually owned art. So, yeah. so there was a big hurdle. So let's talk about your background financial. Like where, what, what kind of a background did you have? You're from a big Catholic family. Right. So normal upper middle class went to private school, but like wore the same sweater for three years, you know, sort of. Did you generic. have a cool car when you were in high school? I and college? didn't drive really until I was well, actually, I just started a couple of weeks ago. I'm just kidding. But I, I didn't drive all high school legally, but your family was stable, but not rich. You didn't, you, I spent every. I did weird things. I spent every summer of high school in Europe, mm -hmm. but so you were I, rich. But I didn't own a car, right? But you. Were, but that's not something that like middle class people do. See the, the whole this whole like middle class thing. What does it? What does that mean to you? What does being middle class mean? Well, I mean, rich kids would have lived in different neighborhoods than I did at the time, mm -hmm. and rich kids would have gone to a nicer private school than you and I went to. Well, how would you define rich? Where does, like, I always thought like rich was like the dentist's kids. 
And now Rich is like the hedge fund kids, right? So Right, right. I mean, I don't think we knew of anyone at our school that had a trust fund. Oh, I think we did. Really? A few. Any that, names? Not that, I'm not going to mention anybody, are, but are there's gonna, probably people. Are you going to invite them no, to the I'm show? Not sure there's, I'm not sure people even knew they had trust funds. I mean, I think there was definitely a, there was a, you say private school. This was a, a parochial or archdiocesan Catholic school, which is different than some fancy prep school. Correct. Like I hadn't heard the term trust fund until I went to Emory University. Right, right, yeah. So there's some trust funds. In it. Well, that's what I mean. So, so like, so middle class is sort of this. I I question myself because sometimes I justify, hey, yeah, I've I've made some money, but I grew up middle class. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps, and this is the narrative I use to, for whatever reason, tell myself that I earned everything that I've made. Right. So, like, when you say you grew up middle class, I'm just always like, well. That's my dog snoring in the background, by the way, if anybody's... You call it whatever you want. Right. <laughs> the It's my tummy's grumbling. No, the um, middle class, I mean, yes, we were middle class. I had five brothers and sisters, and my dad worked for the utility as an engineer. He, he wasn't a doctor. We weren't rich, but we had more than everything we needed. But today, the, the definition of middle class is like somebody who does more kind of like labor with their hands, you know? Like, it's, if you look at the middle 50th percent you grew up in a not over the top affluent house, but you had more, you had everything you needed. You had budget to travel, you, you stuff like that. Yeah. I, I mean, I think when I graduated college, it was 1986. I know high, high school. school. Yeah. So that was like the invention of yuppies mm -hmm. right in that high, the stock market crashed two years later or a year yes, later. Right. Yep. And and so there was this very extreme idea where money suddenly became way more important for college kids than it was 20 years before. Well, those yuppies were the hippies that grew up and cut their hair. Yes. Took a shower. Right. Dirty, but some of them were hippies. And then there were younger versions who weren't, hippies they were just young kids out of college suddenly making half a million bucks on wall street there seemed to be an option if you wanted to have a creative life that wasn't on the menu of lawyer doctor whatever work, right work for coca-cola then the options were figure out a way to make enough money so you can retire and then explore whatever creative pursuit you have one could say you chose that path yes or there was the Sufi route of go seek knowledge first, because like, what if you did get your wealth and then you didn't have anything to say when you were done or didn't remember what you <laughs> right. were planning on doing Yeah, and, and just try your luck that way. So I took a year off and then I was like, you know, I might as well just do this. Do this, meaning you might as well just go try to be a painter. Just, yeah, live off the menu and figure it out. Okay, so you came back to the States. You had a show in your hometown here in Atlanta. And then I made, you know, ten, twenty thousand $20,000. Felt like a million. Right. And enough to go mess, mess around for a year or two. Mm -hmm. My whole view of money at the time was like, money meant thinking time. Mm -hmm. So... If I was living on 20 bucks a day, $1,000 was a lot of days. Right. And like once I had like six months of thinking time, I kind of really felt rich. So this has been still 20 years. Since so, so I've had a job other than painting for about 15 days in the last 28 years. Wow. What were those jobs? Well, I worked at a pizza place before my daughter was born for, I mean... I sold myself as someone who had experience in kitchens and after two shifts, they demoted me, <laughs> reduced my pay from nine to $8 an hour. And you're how old at this point? Uh, old enough to know better. And yeah. you're working in a pizza joint. I, I was 33. Yeah. The, the age Jesus redeemed the world and I was unable to, you know, pay my heating. Yeah. And you're, you're married at this point. And I was married. You've gone through some lean years in your pursuit of your art. There have been like really high points and really low points and then a lot in between. I remember one kind of heiress that bought a lot of paintings in Atlanta and my brother has a big landscape company and then he, 
she became his client. Mm-hmm. And a couple of years after, she spent probably far more money on paintings than she had planned. Mm-hmm. I'm weeding her yard for oh. my brother, wow. looking through the bay window at a painting I sold for 10 grand, thinking, yes, this is the path of downward nobility. You know, like everyone in our culture was trying to get better and richer. And it felt like every decision I made made me less economically rich, but richer in experience. So your wife is also a painter. She is. Is there competition in the home? And are there are there times when one person's doing really well and the other is trying to get their feet back under them or build their client base? Like, how do you balance financial life as, as a two-artist household? Well, I think it's probably the same with anybody with two jobs. You just kind of kind of divide economics and figure that out. And every Everybody's a little different, but in terms of direct competitive things, our galleries would be different mm-hmm. and our collectors are mostly different. She's, you know, one of the premier female landscape painters in the country and her market is very clearly defined. Meaning it's more traditional while people who put paintings of Brillo pads on their wall or, or, or Velveeta cheese boxes is a little bit more progressive or what? Well, it's, it's just, it's just different groups. You know, sometimes there's crossover. I mm-hmm. mean, she comes from a very old patrician Bostonian, dare I say waspy culture mm-hmm. and, and a lot of her clients kind of fit her upbringing. So take us through sort of how you got established because, you know, you were just telling me that 15 years ago you were working in a, you were pulling weeds and working in a pizza shop. Like 20, 20 years ago. 20, okay. something so, like that. So how do you go from coming back from Paris and then, you know, struggling to creating enough of a brand and enough of a customer base to make a pretty decent living as an artist? How do you do that? You know, there were certain times where, I was lucky kind of slash successful where I just, I think the first time I made like $20,000 in a month, Mm -hmm. I thought I had made it. 20 a month sounds, that's pretty decent. Well, I made $20,000. If you can do it again. I That was the weird thing because I made $20,000 in January and then I didn't make another penny for 15 months after that. Ooh. And so the weirdest and most challenging thing in the beginning was I made all of my money in two or three months out of the year, but I didn't know which two or three months that would happen in. So it's really hard to plan. So budgeting conversations. Not so good. Must be really fun. Right, right, right. And then, you know, I hustled and I worked hard and I would make the equivalent of an inner city Catholic school teacher salary. I'm guessing. Right steady. I could make that every year, you know, my 30 to 50. And it's, it was a hard road, a lot of work for that. And then sometimes that felt successful and sometimes that felt like failure. And it, it, in what way? Well, just the nine months that you're not making money, you're like painting in a void. Right. And then the, the few months that you are, it's like, Oh, this actually works. I don't know what I was worried about. And then, <laughs> and then when my kid was born, I had this little epiphany looking around my very cool barn studio that in 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, whenever I die, my daughter's going to inherit this barn filled with abstract paintings that nobody really wants. And that was like a sobering, depressing thought. So I was like, if I'm going to be kind of a success, kind of a failure, I might as well do exactly what I feel like doing. Right. So that's when I kind of started doing the Walmarts. I started doing portraits of famous painters on black plexiglass, portraits of icons. And so when I, that would just doing what I felt like surprising and kind of shelving the idea of what I quote unquote thought was important. Right was very liberating. And then I was actually having fun. And then, and then it kind of didn't matter so much, which goes to that, that idea of like all of our culture is geared towards instant gratification. Mm -hmm. 
And they say successful people learn how to postpone gratification. Right. Eat the marshmallow later. Right. That's a sign of success. But my whole thing was if I found an activity that gave infinite gratification, that was that was a kind of heaven on earth, you know. To do exactly what it is that you want to do. And to feel like connected to the task that you're doing. Okay, that's that sounds really nice. Yeah. But how long would your wife and kids be like, it's okay that daddy doesn't make any money. He's infinitely gratified. Like, congratulations for loving what you do. Now, bring in some bacon, pal. Well, it goes back to like right now, I could retire and live indefinitely in a few countries on earth. <laughs> by yourself <laughs> without your children and wife right they wouldn't join I, well i could support them in those countries however coming with you. they won't be joining yeah. um and and so that's the whole Darfur thing sounds awesome dad <laughs> have a good time so um so that's sort of the weird place we're we're in of like you know are I live you, in the first world. Are you on the same page with your family as to how much is enough? I think relatively speaking, it's always, there's always that navigation of, I think every couple household tries to figure out whatever your budget zone is. Mm -hmm. I think part of it is how anal someone is about a budget versus not. And then the size size matters. Of budget. Of budget. Right. You don't live large, but you also live in an expensive part of the world. Your kids go to good schools. Yes. So do you start out the year with some number in mind that you have to make and then scrap your way to it? Or do you say, okay, last year I made this much and I can probably ballpark it to get to some abstract number? Or is, is your income predictable enough to know where you're going to, you know, what you're going to bring in? Like, how do you, how do you budget when um, it's, it's not like you're renewing subscriptions to paintings? You eat what you kill. Right, right. So, so yeah, that's, I, I mean, that's a work in progress. I mean, there, there, the model used to be when francs were five francs to a dollar. Like I didn't worry until I had below a thousand francs, right? Which was two hundred bucks. Thanks, I was like, "Thank uh, you for doing the math for our for for, for some of us arithmetically challenged." So, so I'd be like, "I got to do something soon." But it's like but, today, but, right? But it's and, one thing when you're existing on no, but you know, but but I mean the same philosophy is in intact, or the same methodology is intact of like when the number hits below a certain, it's like, I got to figure something out <laughs> fast. Right. right. And it's all very like when you're young, you feel very comfortable doing like aggressive brazen things. And as you get older, you're like, I don't feel so comfortable with this marketing tactic or with this sales tactic. For example, when you called me up out of the blue after 20 years and, said you were looking for some art. Mm -hmm. I think I dodged the question three times when you asked me, because I'm like, no one from our high school ever bought a piece of art. <laughs> I'm not going to have this conversation with Paul about money. Because you thought I was, I was looking for some piece that I could have bought at the mall. Is that what you're thinking? I didn't know what you thought. And, and I didn't know if it was like, I buy art by the, by the square yard and I want it <laughs> cheap. Hey, um, hey, you got any of that art? And, I'm, I'm looking for some art. What kind so, of art do you and, have? And so I think you picked up on my reticence. And I think you said, dude, I was employee number 200 at Facebook. <laughs> if I can't afford it, I'll tell you. <laughs> and my, I vaguely recall and that, my yeah. reaction was, well, in that case, I'll show up with a tape measure. <laughs> Sucker. <laughs> it was like, Sucker. Well, I'm, he just drove the cost. <laughs> here's, here's, I, I didn't change the cost. I just changed the number of paintings that would be leaving my studio. In our second, in our second episode will be how not to get bamboozled 
by an art hustler. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, like the price doesn't change in terms of my, 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 I've been pretty steady on that. It's the, it's the number of pieces you think somebody's willing to buy. So how do you market yourself? So you've got a gallery here in Atlanta. I have a gallery here in Atlanta. I had a very lucky PR machine for three years Mm -hmm. and that was like a virtual gallery. Right. So the, so that's when the New Yorker CBS Sunday morning and Colbert all picked up on this novel approach to painting in Walmart. Right. And there was like at least a dozen cities where I got print radio TV every. Right. And so it was very active time and I sold a lot of paintings and that was very, that's great. And then I, I got some big, commissions public and corporate Mm -hmm. and so you know sometimes sometimes you're doing but it's always been that way from the beginning in the beginning i knew i was doing certain things for money like caricatures and i was doing certain things where i don't think anybody's gonna buy this but i want to see where it goes Mm -hmm. and so that concept of you know the commercial hand feeding the creative hand and the creative hand feeding the commercial hand I was comfortable with from the beginning. And so I'm still comfortable with it now. It's just weird when somebody says, you're selling out. And I was like, well, I sold out when I was doing a caricature for $10. What do they mean when they say today, when they say you sold out or when you feel people, you think people are saying that you sold out. My, my intern at the time created a, an email, a folder called haters (laughs) <laughs> and there like there was a three month period where I was the lead story on Yahoo homepage, Hotmail homepage and a- AOL homepage right. and or MSN homepage. And the train of negative comments that followed me doing paintings about Walmart was like staggering. Were there any that hurt? No, it just seemed it was to, to me, it was like, funnier than it was like wow like i i just don't have that much free time where i think i've ever posted a comment on someone's whatever right wouldn't you have to register on the homepage in order and like <laughs> well yeah the, hur- yeah, the hurdle of re- registering to i wouldn't get past that so that's been a few years now right and you say that you know some years some months are better than others are you able to look forward and feel like you have a career, a brand that will provide you and your family with the income that you need to be able to bring in? Well, I mean, that's the most effective thing about success is that kind of belief that you did this and you can do this. I feel it sounds somewhat new agey, but like when I was young and I was like, I need to make $2,000 soon. Right. And I was able to do that. And then it was like, I need to make $10,000. Like the first time I said I needed to make $10,000, you might've said a million because it just seemed as impossible as, as a million. And so I think the numbers change, but it's the same idea of once you believe you can do something and you have experience doing it, you can figure it out. It's kind of like being a consultant in the sense that you have to pitch new projects every so often to be able to go out there and make sure you've got the revenue coming in for Q4 or you know, Q1 or whatever. To... Right. If I knew what Q meant, then I would be more successful. <laughs> <laughs> quarter. Fiscal quarter. I, I didn't know that, but you did know that. <laughs> you're so you're so artistic that you you have you you're above the the day to day operational language of business I get that it, it doesn't sound to me like you've ever been obsessed with money. Um, I felt like money was an unneeded distraction during whole chunks of time, and I felt like the middle class is constantly harassed by money. What do you mean by that? Well, just that you're you have the wrong amount of needs for the wrong amount of money. And that there's just a constant struggle where you're always thinking about it. And I did, at an early age, want to find a way to be liberated from thinking about it all the time. 
I felt like there were really only two paths and one was to be kind of indifferently poor mm-hmm. and, and kind of strip yourself of needing to think and want all these things that people think they want and need. And then the other pass was to be like really, really rich. Right. So you don't think about it. Yeah. Which, which is a fallacy. It's giant. I, fallacy. No, I get that. It appears to me that, I mean, you don't demonstrate the trappings of tons of wealth. You drive a beat up old Volvo station wagon that embarrasses your children. Easy Sparky. Well, I'm, I'm only reporting right, what, right, what right. you've told no, me. No, I hear you. I hear you. you I, I mean, no, I mean, you live a, you live a, I, I, you, it's not like you're driving a Porsche and, you know, wearing Versace every day. No, I do have my pants on. I don't, <laughs> I don't own a pair of jeans and I paint in button down white shirts. Um, no, I'm teasing, but I, I'm not, but I don't have the trappings of wealth. I, is that by, I mean, do you do it because that's just, you don't give a shit about that or do you do it because really, you just, you just, or is it even a conscious choice? You just, you know, my dad had this phrase growing up of like, don't envy what anybody has because you don't know what they sacrifice to get that thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I have a lot of freedom in terms of what I do. So like, I don't really think about cars so much. But like occasionally there's a car, like you have a really nice car. Thank and I'd be you, thank like, you, thank you. huh, it's I, old. you want to buy it? Uh, no, but I want you to give it to me. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so I'm like the level of sack, what X number of things am I willing to sacrifice in order to do that? And it's like, you know, there's that Dostoevsky quote about the minute you give a man freedom, he looks for the nearest rock to chain himself to. Oh my God. And there's this thing about life. Was that, that in the cliff notes? Cause I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> the brother's K at the beginning. So, but there's this idea that, that like we, the minute somebody pays off something, they're looking to get in debt again or get some thing, which gets some adrenaline flow. I don't really have that, that thing. That's a good instinct to miss. I'm telling, I mean, like I, you can look at just uh, aggregate statistics of, you know, debt in the United States and see that it's absolutely true. But even on a, on a, a anecdotal micro issue, it's funny. Like my two kids are so different when it comes to money. My nine-year-old son said the other day, dad, can I have your phone? I want to go on Amazon and look for things to buy. <laughs> like he doesn't, he didn't have something in mind. He wanted to just go browse, find some th- browse not just not browse like a, the lego store he means like to browse the entire the universe. <laughs> universe of things to That's buy amazing. right whereas my daughter's like i don't care about money which is why she overpaid for a um for a micro platypus stuffed animal that he ripped her off with but anyway i, I think you're absolutely right like we get we get all caught up with the stuff and we end up sacrificing our freedom for it if you want to make a living as an artist you got to make that choice Right. So yeah, I don't care about a whole bunch of things, but as you do get older, you feel this weird primal need to be slightly richer and fitter. Where does that come from? I don't know. Just the idea to be like vital. Richer and fitter. Right. I find the instinct to be, I find it's like, why, why do I need to be fitter? I just don't want to die. Like, like, well, that's entropy. Okay. You're, you're like, cause you already got the richer part down. <laughs> No, no, no. I'd like to be richer. No, I, I, I get that, but, but just the notion of, it's a reverse quotient. Like, if, if you were poorer, then you would have the need to be even fitter. Sure, because if you don't have Benjamins, you can still have abs. Right, because at the end of the day, that whole idea of being kind of desirable as a human is very connected to our desire to achieve and attain. And so what are you working for these days? Are you still looking for the achievement? For abs, is that what you're saying? (laughs) For abs. Um, There's a, there's a very, one of the most interesting nonfiction books I've read in the last 10 years is a book called American Mania, Mm -hmm. when more is not enough. Mm -hmm. And this psychiatrist talks about that the migrant gene that most Americans have because they were the second born or third born children that had to go off and make their fortune. Right. Whereas the primogenitor, they stayed at home 
Americans are, we're filled with the people who have this acquisitive primitive brain in spades of wanting to need and want more. Right. And so like, I think about that book a lot because like, what's enough, you know, like how much of the game is important to you. And we're all at our continuum of accepting what you have as being enough and, you know, your desire to improve. So it's a, it's, it's a dance. I feel like I've come to a pretty good place in terms of like what we consume and how much we spend. And, and granted, it's a nice base to be at, but we could certainly spend less. We could definitely spend more, but like, I'm not really working on abs so much as really just trying to define my point of view and see if there's, if it resonates at all in the broader Ethos. dialogue. What do you want to achieve in the next 10 years? I mean, cause you're not going to be alive that much longer. Then 10. <laughs> I don't know how much. No, I mean, like, how, what do you want to do in the next few? You've, you've achieved probably a pretty decent level of artistic notoriety. I mean, did you ever think you'd be on TV or featured in the New Yorker? Yeah, actually. <laughs> I did, weirdly. In my delusion, when I was going to the Berkeley College of Music, I was, I was, I was <laughs> with, with definitely your, on the, with my guitar. Um, dinosaur so, guitar. So I don't. Everybody wants a larger playing field in the sense of not everybody, but I feel like I'm capable of having a larger playing field than I do presently. Yeah. And, you know, some people are completely content where they are. Would you be happier having more of a customer base or having more artistic notoriety or are those, are those things synonymous? They're not necessarily synonymous. I mean, how much money you make really has no bearing on how good of an artist you are. You know, all you have to do is look at the New York art world to see, like, there's a whole host of people who make tens of millions of dollars a year that it's not all that interesting. Yeah. But too much money's been invested in that train. So so it's self-perpetuating? Yeah. It's What, what are you going to do? Suddenly be like, oh, your tens of millions of dollars are not worth anything? Mm-hmm. If you were to give advice to a 25-year-old artist who's trying to find his or her voice or point of view, what would you tell him? You know, that's not easy. You well, know? what would you tell them about money, I guess? What, what can they learn from you about money? Yeah, I think it's one of those things that, that we bumble our way through. Like, I don't... At times, I had very clear ideas of I could pretty much help anybody figure out how to make subsistence level yeah. as an artist. But then all you have to do is go on Instagram and I think 20,000 of the 30,000 people who follow me mm -hmm. are artists. Right. Probably not making a living. And I think everyone should explore some creative means for mental, spiritual liberation. Do I think everybody should kind of take a new mortgage out and try their luck as an artist. It's probably not a good idea. Did yeah. my wife tell you to say that? <laughs> it's funny. There are a lot of artists out there. Right. And most art is bad. Just like the most of anything in life is bad. When did your art go from being bad to being acceptable to you? You know, I was an early adopter in the good. <laughs> no, I'm just Mike Perbiglia, the comedian and, and producer, director, writer, multi-talented dude has this whole thing about like in the beginning of any artistic pursuit and specifically comedy, you have to totally be delusional to say that, you know, your work is good enough. And like you go up on stage and you just absolutely bomb and eat it <laughs> and you come off and you go, yeah, that, that wasn't that bad. It was pretty good. That went all right. 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 I, <laughs> Otherwise I, I, nobody would make it through the first couple of years. Delusion is, is your friend in the beginning. So, so like, that's the thing is like, if I give, the real practical fatherly advice. Yeah. It's like the worst thing because it's like, why would you rain on someone's delusion when that's the only thing keeping them going? <laughs> oh God, it's so sad. It's, it's really sad. Well, the, the other thing that I, I sort of stumbled along is the people who aren't paid in money pay themselves in ego. You know, it's like, and that was the best thing that happened economically was that liberation of, I don't 
really have to brag and sell myself, which isn't really the way I f- like to feel. And I don't like to brag and sell right. myself, but I had to for survival reasons. Yeah. And then like having some people brag for you just liberates you from that. God damn. I can't wait till that happens. <laughs> I'm so, I'm, I can't even tell you how sick I am of promoting my shows to my friends and begging them to come. It's horrible. Right. It's, it, I mean, it's not demeaning. It's just, it's the thing that goes against every, just kind of, my father is the most modest, soft-spoken guy. Great, funny, hilarious, but just complete lack of ego. And it feels so inauthentic to have to promote yourself on social media today to get people to come just to listen and hear if you have anything worth saying. Right. Right. Promoting this podcast is going to hurt me. Right. <laughs> well, thank you for inviting me. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I make you feel very awkward. About it's like, I, I feel, do you realize very, how much pain you're causing me? Very special. No, to be a I part mean, of this like, I, I believe in carousel of pain. I believe in uh, trying to, to, to promote the exploration of the topic of money. Right. Because I think that we have the opportunity to live better lives. We understand money better. I think younger artists can learn from hearing about the journey that you've been on. What's cool about the brood economics of, of what you're doing is you're asking people to invest more in more time than money to actually for sure. I mean, for do, sure. do what you do. So that, that has a different hurdle, which is interesting and cool. My entry, I'm not asking for five or 10 grand from these people. But you're asking for like three or four hours in a week, which is, Which nobody has, which my target audience does not have. So that's, that's kind of interesting, but it's nice that economics is removed from the equation in the sense of you're not, you're not doing this to pay the mortgage. No. And so you have that liberty to be like 22 again and doing what you would do as a young man and explore all those things. And I'm not doing everything that I would do as a young man. <laughs> well, thank so, God. But that whole concept of, of like money is one of the two or three things that put the most pressure on the human heart. You mm-hmm. know, like mm-hmm. money is a key element of that. Yes. Um, I'd argue like sex is up there too. Um, Don't look at me like that when you say that. You're making me feel very uncomfortable. So, so, but money is a key key thing. Where money, health are two things that if you have a crisis of either of those, right. you can't do a single other thing until you solve that crisis. Yes, bankruptcy or cancer. Like if you're teetering on either of those two, it's like no other free thought goes anywhere except to solve that problem. Right. So that that's kind of interesting about the subject of money. What's the brokest you've ever been? I once gave away my entire net worth. <laughs> okay, well that could be either a lot or a little. No, well, it was it was fifty francs, but mm. it was ten bucks. But but like it was it was a weird thing where I had a dream because I was surviving. It's very mystical moment of my life. I, I'm doing portraits in the street and I'm yeah. making ten dollars a day and I'm wondering how I'm actually going to pay rent and how to do this. And, and I dreamed that this guitarist was walking across the water mm-hmm. into my little boat. And, and there was an old man in the boat with me and the old man gave him 50 francs mm-hmm. and said, and I was like, wow, that's a ton of money to give somebody. Yeah. And he was like, money doesn't mean anything. A long time ago, somebody gave me money. It doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. So the next day I went to the grocery store and I had two days worth of food and I'm walking back to my studio Yeah, and I'm like, right now I'm richer than two thirds of the planet. Like I have two days of food and I don't have to, I don't have to do anything to survive for the next two days. Mm -hmm. And there was a guy who normally busked for money and he was like wasted and begging and he just like looked like such a, you know, shitty mess and. I went in my pocket to give him a coin and I only had a 50 franc note Mm -hmm. and I gave it to him and I didn't even think about it. And then a couple minutes later, I remember the dream and I remember thinking, wow, I just gave away all of my money in the world. 
But, you know, that day I went up to the town to do my caricatures where my thought was I worked for him today. Mm -hmm. I just gave away the 50 francs that I'm about to make right. today. It didn't seem like a big deal. But then I made 1,500 francs that day. Three Japanese tourists came by. That's <laughs> <laughs> so it was. It's like I, I, I had a Catholic girls' school from Tennessee, and I did them from like, it was very bizarre. They just, like, I just did the whole group of them. And I just had this very mystical relationship to survival and money at the time of, if I'm supposed to do this, the way is going to take care of itself. Right. I've never felt like that. That is an incredibly cool and centered point to come from. People that write about money might say that you have an attitude of abundance where mine had been an attitude of scarcity where like money is something that is to be hoarded and, and protected. And I mean, we give away a lot of money now, but I just never had come from a place where as an adult, I didn't rely that I was going to be able to pay rent next month. But then you were, you were a day artist. Right. And then all of a sudden this gullible group of Catholic girls from Tennessee comes by. I kind of survived on monthly miracles because at the end of each month I had to come up with 1500 in rent and then somehow it would happen. Something that you can manage far better, the lower your burn rate is. And if you're like, if your daily requirements are a loaf of bread and bottle of water, I mean, maybe some cheese. Did I tell you about the Dutch man in the, you told me about the little man in the boat, which I didn't comment on. You talked about a whole busload of, of so, Catholic schoolgirls that you did the whole group, and I didn't touch on that. Well, I had this very weird moment. One, well, there are little epiphanies related yeah. to money. Okay, where I'm doing these portraits and their caricatures, and at this juncture, I think I'm doing them for for six bucks. Okay, and. And I'm making, I'm doing a lot of them. Like yeah. I'm doing, making a hundred, two hundred dollars a day and six bucks in rent. So wow. it's a lot of drawing. Right on. And these two Dutch girls came up to me and they want, they wanted a double caricature. And, and so they, they negotiated, like they halved my price before we began. Right. And I'm like, whatever, I just want to draw, get my, 9,000th drawing out of the way sure. so I can get a little better and yeah. and I don't care. And so I do this and what I notice about drawing 10 caricatures a day, like two or three were like home runs. One or two were a wincing embarrassment <laughs> that I would smile and act like it was okay and just see if it flew or not. Right. And then the rest were in the middle on the spectrum. Yeah. And so the one I nailed in the other one was on the spectrum. It wasn't terrible, but it wasn't like right on. Yeah. And so the father comes up while they're sitting there. Of the Dutch girls. Of the Dutch girls. Mm -hmm. And I show them the portrait and they start talking to each other in Dutch. Mm -hmm. And then he looks at me and he says, the one picture doesn't look like her. And I was like, I'm sorry, you don't have to buy it. It's like, I don't make anyone buy it. Right. And he was like, no, we like it, but maybe not at that price. And I was like, well, we already have the price. And he yeah. was like, well, maybe half again. <laughs> and I'm like, seriously, you don't have to buy it. I'm, I'm good. Right. And then he was holding out his coins in this like very Charles Dickens, patronizing mm -hmm. way and he was like take the money oh god and, and he was like now i've now i've offended him just take the money just just take the and he keeps repeating this and now i'm getting pissed right and you know how you never have the line you never have the line in the moment when you're in fury sure but you do get to obsess about it for the rest of your life but i had the line this yeah. time and it was it was now I know why Van Gogh left Holland and came to France. Oh, that's pretty you cheap good. fuck. <laughs> and, and I gave, I let him, I like dropped the coin, left the drawing and just left my stand mm -hmm. for about 20 minutes. And I was still pissed, even though I had the line. Yeah. 
And I was like super, I was just in that fury stage and I came back to my stand and I'm sitting there and I hear this lady say, Monsieur, would you paint my son? And I look up to this lovely French woman and her son is severely disabled in this wheelchair. She's looking at him in a way that I didn't, I felt better just being in the presence of her looking at him that way. Right. And so I started doing this drawing and it kind of melted that toxic resentment of the Dutch, fuck, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, you know, this young boy and what's like, just the world was so crazy and why, like, I just felt so many things and I felt better having doing that next drawing. Yeah. And, and it was a very crazy, bizarre juxtaposition of like worrying about 20 francs and then being in a whole nother level of beneficence of someone. But you weren't worried about 20 francs. You were worried about the respect that somebody showed you. Well, you just hit it and I didn't have the, the words at the time, but, but like, and I was worried about something on such a silly, like my personal reaction to some Dutch man and two teenage yeah. Dutch girls. Yeah. And then this woman brought me to another realm. Well, th no, that's beautiful. But I mean, you're hitting on kind of two, I mean, it, because you're not doing it for the money necessarily. And he could have walked away and paid you nothing and, and left you feeling much better about the experience than had he tried to demean you with his, with his offer and his condescension. Right. You know, if you wave money, it's like a bartender to, as if you're beckoning a dog with a treat. <laughs> that's, that's an affront to, to their dignity. Right. I mean, that's what you were pissed off about. But that line is pretty damn good about Van Gogh. I mean, <laughs> that, that was a rare moment where I ha usually I'm stuttering and stammering afterwards. But. Right. So at least you didn't have to have that regret. Right, right, right. So you're experiencing both like sort of the financial feeling of powerlessness that being a low, poorly paid artist without much room to negotiate in one moment. And then a moment later, you've got this transcendent experience where you have the opportunity to connect with another human being through art. Wow. You just said it very succinctly and poignantly because that, that that's essentially it. Because I kept feeling like I was on the bottom rung of the capitalist ladder. Right. And people were regularly trying to kick me off the bottom rung <laughs> to what extent is it a decision to stay on that rung as an artist and to what extent are you actually powerless well there's something about the idea of i i kept meeting different people who were very beneficial to me in a character development sort of way and one of them was like just said he just kept saying to me, you know, you actually have everything. So give, just, hmm. just be more generous. You actually have everything, right? There's no need to worry about any of this. All right. The Dutch story was good. Any other stories about, do you want to demean any other nationalities? That's <laughs> what we're talking. All right. What do you have coming up this year? I'm working on this big commission. Also doing a many like, I'm saving a part of my day to do whatever I feel like doing. Yeah. What does that mean? Meaning whatever images that come to me in my sleep or in meditation or whatever, just kind of carving out a place to do whatever I feel like. Right. And I don't know if that will have a commercial end, but there may be. Well, you're allowing yourself to stumble on something that could be your next thing. Is that the idea? Theoretically. Yeah. That's, that's kind of, it, I, I, without I, sounding so calculated no, <laughs> about no, the whole no, thing no, but, maybe if i let go no but but you made a comment about what would you tell someone 25 like i feel like the whole paradigm of many things are going to shift in the next 10 years mm -hmm. where it's like we're worrying about this and we gotta we might have to solve the water problem we might just like the world's unraveling itself so the idea of selling a ten thousand dollar painting seems like a well, low concern. It might be important to me 
at this moment, but like really in the grand scheme of things, it's not that important. Yeah. Well, so much for your work ethic. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm not going to continue painting. No, I just might I, not sell them. That's right. That's right. All right. Where, what are your social handles? Where can people hunt you down? At BOC artist. It's kind of the main one. That's on Instagram. On Instagram. And my website's my name, Brendan O'Connell. Dot com. Dot com. It's actually just Brendan O'Connell. He's redefining how the internet works. <laughs> yeah. All right, man. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for thank doing you. this. So that was my interview with Brendan O'Connell. Brendan, thank you for your time, buddy. If you want to find out more about Brendan, you can check him out on his Instagram account, which is at B-O-C artist, all one word, or on his website, brendanoconnell.com, B-R-E-N-D-A-N-O-C-O-N-N-E-L-L.com. No apostrophe. The internet does not appreciate Irish apostrophes and last names, so don't try to put it in there. Uh, I'm Paul Ollinger. If you want to find out more about what I'm up to, where I'll be comedy-wise, go to paulollinger.com, O-L-L-I-N-G-E-R. Thank you for listening. Come back next week, won't you? Bye-bye.